Welcome to Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to the history and the theology of the Lutheran Reformation, all over a nice cold beer. I'm Evan Gertner. And I'm Mike Yagley. Today we're going to talk about the Seventh Commandment. We are working through Martin Luther's large catechism. The Seventh Commandment is, uh, Thou shalt not steal. Right around paragraph 222. Uh, if you're following along and uh, with one of the downloaded we that, the downloaded versions, this is the standard version that's uh, yeah. available. Any version out there will have the paragraph numbers. So you get the Book of Concord, Book of Concord by Colbin Wengert, which is kind of the academic copy. They'll have it. You get the Concordia Lutheran Confessions from CPH. It's kind of a reader's edition. They'll have the same same then, numbers, same numbers, and then even the copies that you can just. Find in the public domain. They all have the same numbers. And we uh, we are specifically choosing the ones that are in the public domain because, well, we don't expect anybody to have those uh, more academic versions. So, the, the again, uh, uh, paragraph 222. So, Luther starts out by making the point that there is an order to the commandments. And this is something he, it seems like almost every version, every commandment, he goes back to that foundational principle that there's a there's an order to this that that God is a God of order. It's almost like he's in, it's 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 almost like he's he's uh, he's inferring that you know mm-hmm. throughout the whole thing. When the repeated introduction that is at the beginning of each of these commandments is also evidence of their original source as sermons that would stand alone on their own in a sermon series. And so he as he's preaching on the seventh commandment, he's drawing people back in their memories to what he's already preached. Now, when you read in a book, you just read it continuous from one commandment to the next commandment to your next commandment. These introductions can almost seem extra and repetitive, but it shows kind of the nature of its oral origins. And it is good to go back to that foundation that no, there is an order to these things that that the, the commandments, you know, the first commandment is more important than the fifth commandment. It's more important than the tenth commandment and so forth. So one way the commandments get structured would be two tables, tables of the law. So you've got commandments one, two, and three deal with God, and commandments four through ten deal with our neighbor. But then Luther can take four through ten and bring them to even a little bit more uh, order. And that is, first we talk about our parents uh, and our relationship uh, with our neighbor's physical uh, self, body, uh, so the fifth commandment, you shall not murder. Then we'll talk about our relationship to our spouse and our, our neighbor's spouse. Uh, you shall not commit adultery. And then commandments 7, 8, 9, and 10 deal more with our neighbor's temporal property uh, and his ability to have a job. So we've got stealing or we've got reputation or even the trust and confidence that what you have is what you have and what your neighbor has is what your neighbor has. You don't need to covet between those things. So Luther has a quote there. He says that the temporal pro- the, the this particular commandment about temporal property, about not stealing, uh, is that God wishes to have people's property protected, and He has commanded that no one shall subtract from or curtail his neighbor's possessions. So that's sort of that's sort of framing this up, and and you know, and he starts diving into it in more detail. But that's. You know, and we'll start looking at this with Luther to to go into. And so from from there, now that he's defined it a little bit, he, that we're he's not got, supposed to curtail, subtract, take away from our neighbor's possession. Then he goes on and defines stealing. Right. So uh, now I'm going to start off with Luther's definition of stealing, 
For to steal is nothing else than to get possession of another's property wrongfully, which briefly comprehends all kinds of advantage and all sorts of trade to the disadvantage of our neighbor. And, and so he's he's saying, and it gives a, a starts out with it's not even to it's not just to empty our our neighbor's coffer and, and pockets, uh, but also what does coffer mean. I, I assume it's a coffer. I, maybe you know, but I, I guess whenever I hear the term coffer, I think of it as being like someplace where you store your money. Yeah. So maybe underneath the mattress or the the cookie jar where Mama hides the cookies or. Um, what are some other things we would think of being a coffer today? Um, a chest? Yeah, and back in the days before before banks, yes. I would assume, or when you know, Private not banking, not everybody, banking, yeah, yes. not everybody used banks. They would have a coffer, I would assume. I guess that's a that's a little. Uh, so this would be the obvious kind of stealing that I go into your house and I find where your cookie jar is or your old coffee can, and I take all the money and I leave. Yeah. So that's kind of the most obvious kind of stealing. Or that I, I see that in your backyard you have a nice rotting lawnmower and I just take it. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. The, But he says it's not just taking your neighbor's possessions uh, by emptying their coffer or their pockets. But he includes wherever there's trading or taking or giving of money for merchandise or for labor, there's uh, the opportunity for dishonesty, uh, fraud, and 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 deception. And when we do that for our personal gain and the and the end result is the negligence or the harm of our neighbor's things, that's a problem. So he goes into and as always Luther spends a little bit of time giving some examples. Mm-hmm. And uh and you know it's funny because as I was reading these I was really trying to equate his examples from 1530ish time frame to today. And, uh, you know, because our our economic reality today is so dramatically different than what Luther had in his day. No capitalist economy. Or, yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of things that have happened since then, you know. Although it is happening during his time, thinking about his dad being a copper miner and an entrepreneur, that his father had started to learn what it meant to buy and sell and to gain in capital and be able to then use that capital to leverage the opportunity to buy something else. And I would think that there were those moments when he might have witnessed in the marketplaces around him that uh, people could be dishonest with how they uh, took their knowledge or their means to capital versus someone else's access to capital to take advantage of others. So we've talked about this before in this, uh, on, in this podcast um, about how this particular era is really the very beginnings of the modern economy. Yeah. You know, you, and it was uh, we spent some time talking about how when the when the plague came through Europe and it wiped out so many people, what it ended up doing was creating opportunities for people to get into trades that you know where you know, people were doing things like starting little businesses and it was it was a very it's the the, the plagues disrupted the the black plague disrupted the economy as it was because the knights were counting on having all these people that they could lean on to take care of things and it was I don't know what episode it was but we so were talking I think Thomas Munster and we're talking about the 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 bond and the shoe and the and the idea of the struggle of how does it happen that these knights start to get manipulated right. and 
and that sort of thing. And, and so what ended up happening is Luther does have the very beginnings of the modern, like you were referencing, mm-hmm. the very beginnings of the modern economy that he can start seeing you know, people working. But even there, the people who work tend to work for themselves. They'll be artisans. They'll be, right. you don't have these big corporations. You don't have these big businesses. You don't, the industrial revolution hasn't hit yet. And when he does give examples, they're often from kind of a family household experience, like a maid, a manservant, or a worker that's working for um, an apprentice that's working for a boss or a thing. And very much this line between feudal household and um, indenturedness almost to now what we would think of as the free trade and the movement of of gifts and skills across uh, places. So he talks about how um, a maid or manservant violates the seventh commandment when they do not serve faithfully or, or does damage and allows damage to be done to the property through malice or even through indolence or idleness. Um, Mike, I don't know if you saw, there was a, a meme that uh, supposedly caused a man to get fired this week. It was on the news and it was a picture of Elmo going to the bathroom. And the meme was, if you pay me this little, I'm going to spend my time when I'm at work going to the bathroom. Okay. And the guy said he got fired for posting that on Facebook because then that revealed that he was spending a lot of his time at work. In the bathroom. In the bathroom. And the question on the internet was, should you get fired for posting a meme? Uh, a picture of Elmo going to the bathroom. Uh, that that seems that's well. I, I, I'm I, guessing I would, this guy was probably already on the edge. I was gonna say I hope there's more to it than just a meme. You no, know, yeah. but that's that that would be uh, that that seems uh, in my opinion. If that's all there is to it, that seems like it's it, a bit. It could have been just funny humor. Yeah, the guy was trying to have a laugh, but it. it, it Bleeds into what um, Luther is talking about when a maid or manservant does not serve faithfully. They're violating the seventh commandment. So, and then he goes into, and this is where I was having trouble is uh, he talks, he, he creates a distinction between a maid and a manservant and then a mechanic or a workman. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand that distinction and what was, I mean, maybe yeah. in his day. One worked for the family in the family home, or, and then the other one worked out in in wherever. Right, and and I think that's and it, I, you know where the mechanic, but it sounds like the mechanic or workman is almost like an artisan. It's it's like somebody who provides a service, like a mechanic, like a mechanic today. You know, you go into a small shop and he owns his own shop, and and he says they overcharge, they're lazy, they're unfaithful. Um, and then he says, no one can, no, against these, no one can guard, no one dare even look awry at them or accuse them of, thra- of theft. So this is the, the, the challenge, say, someone who knows how to fix a boiler. And he, he's called out and he says, all right, before I come out, it's going to be $1,000 for my, my service call. And he comes to the job site and he spends 10 seconds there, turns one screw and he leaves and everyone's up in arms and it costs $1,000. And he said, here's the thing. You were out of work. You couldn't function because you didn't know what to do. You called me. I knew what to do. You're paying me for my skill. Yeah. Now, Luther is saying, here's the challenge. That mechanic or that workman, he has you. He has you hostage. And, and you can't uh, dare even look awry at what he's doing because he's the expert. And, and so that, that expert has um, um, a monopoly on the market. And so you, if you accuse him of theft, 
great, you've accused him of theft, but now he's left and you're still broken <laughs> and your machine doesn't work. Right. And so there is, he, I think he's recognizing in this growing climate of expertise that there is the ability for the person who has the expertise to take advantage of people. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I've been doing a lot of work on my home you know, over the past couple of years and I do a lot of the work myself. You know, it's, I enjoy doing those kinds of projects, mm-hmm. but obviously there's a lot of projects that I have to get a contractor. And, um, and so, you know, I go and I get several quotes and the, the spread between one quote and the next is incredible. I and never, you have the advantage of being able to get several quotes. Imagine now you're in Wittenberg. And that's what I was just going to One guy to. who knows it. One guy, if, if, if I didn't have the ability to get three or four quotes or whatever I chose to get, you know, and I was stuck with just one guy. There was a guild maybe that, that all quotes had to run through the guild or something. Yeah. Like that. I mean, I, I, then what Luther is talking about here is, would be very, you know, it would be very apropos. It'd be exactly what we would be dealing with, you know, where it's like, well, you know, Fix your boiler, it's going to cost you a thousand dollars. Yeah, and turn a screw, done. Thanks. Yeah, so two days ago, uh, we had power go out to an outlet actually, a whole set of outlets. And we went down to the service panel, and uh, not one of the circuits was popped. And I thought, this is just a conundrum. And, and the great fright for our family was that this was the circuit. Uh, that has our TV and our internet. Oh, that's what... Our Wi-Fi, our router, all of it. So we've got to get this figured out. We were flung back into the 1980s. We were. And so I went... the TV, back in the 1940s. Yeah, so then I flipped every circuit. uh, And my wife says, you must have done the wrong ones. I'll do them all. So then she flipped every circuit, and it still wasn't going. And and then I came down to the basement and realized that uh, that run of outlets was on a GFCI, and the GFCI had popped. Ah, and ah. and so then I come upstairs and fix it, and and I, I was probably just moments away from saying I don't know what to do. I'm going to call an electrician, and he could have charged me whatever he wanted because I wanted my Wi-Fi. Back. <laughs> that so that's some of the challenge here. So then Luther goes on. He says, "My neighbors, good friends, my own servants, from whom I expect good, every faithful and diligent service, they defraud me." First of all, I wonder if you know he's. Something's happened here for Luther. He realizes that there are people who are his friends, his servants, his neighbors. But when it comes to the marketplace, somehow people turn off their integrity. That's his experience right here. He's, he's exhausted from getting defrauded. Yeah. And one of the, one, you know, I, I actually, it's, you know, Luther it seems to be in this little talk here. And because it is before you know, the, the, the free markets and all, all the things that have happened since. You know, he's looking like, you know, there's got to be some controls on this. He almost sounds, I'm not going to say socialist, but he, he almost sounds like he wants somebody to regulate this. You know, and I think yes. he might even come out and say that. And I think that's the point of the Seventh Commandment is to say there should be, in a virtuous society, the self-regulation of the Seventh Commandment. Right. And that that's why if people, if we could teach more about the seventh commandment, that those who are seeking to live godly, pleasing lives would recognize that God's call on their virtue is not just to sit in the pew, but that God's call to virtue is dealing with our neighbor. So as you think about that division of the commandments, deal with God, worship, deal with your parents, the household, uh, kids should listen to their parents, uh, deal with marriage, 
Husbands and wives, you should love, honor, and cherish one another. Does what God has to say in this world matter elsewhere? And this is where he starts to say, it sure does. Yeah. All right. So then the key really is to go back to how do I best love my neighbor? I know there's a lot of people who are struggling with that question. Now, you you had brought up something before um, in a conversation we had about price gouging and uh, allowing prices to float versus um, overcharging because one of the things Luther says we should not do is overcharge. It's funny because I, I work with a lot of people who set prices. You know, in my business, um, you know, I, I know the guys who are responsible for setting prices. For- I just learned today there's a whole field of engineering called valuation. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't know that before today. I was yeah. like, how do they come up with these prices? Do they just throw a dart to the board? Well, there, there's, yeah. <laughs> well, that's a big discussion we could get into. But the, but the, the, there is, there's the cost side of things. And then there's the, the price side of things. And, and so it's actually setting the price. Of course, the, the, you need to make, well, almost always need to make more than, than it costs to make. I mean, there are times when you'll... The rotisserie chicken at Costco. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. So, 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 you know, what you end up with is, you know, it, it is difficult. And even for the people who, the people I know who do this, um, and, and the small businessmen that I know who do this, who have to set a price for their product and for their services, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really sort of tough for them. And they spend a lot of time going out into the marketplace and seeing what everybody else is charging. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the... And so if, you let the price float and you let the market help understand a price right right and and sometimes they're they're uh they do things like uh they'll 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 say well okay uh there and we see this all the time you know where you know if you're of retirement age you get a break you Mm -hmm. know because you're probably on a fixed income and and you know we're going to give you a ten percent break or at, ho- at restaurants or they, and they have their own reasons for doing that. But so sometimes it's virtuous that they want to help someone who's uh, a veteran or someone who's elderly, someone who's disabled, right? And, and they realize I am doing well enough in my business elsewhere that I can lose a little money here. Now maybe there's a, a place like IHOP or McDonald's that realizes if you have senior coffee then you've got someone who's regularly coming in as a customer. So it's not always virtuous. Right. But, I mean, I've, I've known guys who run small businesses who will offer their services for free to retirees. Mm-hmm. If they know somebody and they know they're having a hard time and they know that they will just do it for free or they'll do it for bartering. They'll mm-hmm. say, hey, you know, you know, give me some cookies and I'll, you know, whatever. There, there are – that does happen. Yeah. So that's where you set a price based on virtue and, and the idea of I want to love my neighbor. Now let's talk about the antonyms to that. And that would be the ways in business we could set a price that is not in view of how I will love my neighbor. Well, probably you know, the, you know, there's always the you know, bad merchandise where, where, where you reduce the quality of something to the point where you know, some percentage of them is going to be bad. Mm-hmm. You know, and just plain not going to work. And there's manufacturers, uh, clothing manufacturers. I know there's a pair of jeans that I used to always buy. It always fit the exact same way. The fabrics always felt the same. They closed their U.S. manufacturing site. They moved it over to Asia somewhere. And um, I bought a couple more jeans from that company. And every pair of jeans fit different and felt different from the one I just bought. Um, and, and so they, they lost something. But... They were able to continue to get people to buy because they had developed their brand. Right. 
but they were now selling, in my opinion, bad merchandise. It's right. eventually going to catch up to them, but maybe not right away. Uh, there's also, you know, uh, of course, there's there's false measures. The Luther brings up uh, things like false measures, false weights, false coins. You know, things that uh, the Bible talks about. Mm-hmm. The Bible spends a lot of time talking about having proper measures, having proper, you know, uh, 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 coins using using proper coins, proper scales, an accurate EFA size bin for flour and all that. So we can have bad merchandise. We can have false measures. Uh, we can have false weights, uh, false coins, uh, or we can also do things by uh, uh, devious tricks of you know when someone doesn't recognize the value of something, and uh, you have. Um, this whole idea of different size coins. You know, if you've ever gone to a foreign country and you don't know what the coins mean and you, you buy something and you just hold out your hand and you hope they pick the right amount <laughs> out because you don't know what the coins mean. You think maybe it's the biggest coin is the most important one, but sometimes it's not. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, Luther's talking about that and, and he calls these people swivel chair robbers. And, and he, he says, uh, therefore, they are also called swivel chair robbers, land and highway robbers, not picklocks and sneak thieves, which I'm assuming are like pickpockets, who snatch away the ready cash. But these are people who sit on a chair at home and are styled great noblemen and honorable, pious citizens, and yet rob and steal under a good pretext. Luther calls these people great, powerful arch thieves with whom lords and princes keep company. And, of course, he takes a little sidebar to mention the Pope and all that. Well, that's a great opportunity now for us to take a little beer break uh, as we end on the, the, the but, swivel thieves and the sneak thieves. You know, we're, we're on swivel chairs. I don't know about you. I, I'm, I'm on a solid I'm, chair. I'm, You're the swivel chair. <laughs> I'm on a swivel chair. I'm a swivel thief. Today we are featuring a beer from Tapestry Brewery that's in Bridgman, Michigan, right near... Uh, Warren Badoon State Park on the west side of the state of Michigan. That is a beautiful, beautiful park. I don't know uh, if, the, if you've, you've ever been there. It's, um, it's uh, basically... Often when we drive to Chicago and we need to stretch our legs, no longer do we stop at McDonald's, we stop at Warren Dune State Park. Oh, do you? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, this is actually up near... So Bridgman is just moments away from Warren Dune State Park. Okay. Uh, just south of Grand Marie State Park and... Uh, Let's talk now about the beer. It's called Enigma. It's a little bit of a mystery of a beer. It's in a uh, looks like it has a ninja styled guy on the cover and green kind of alien spooky writing. <laughs> so it's, they're trying to call in a couple couple different themes right there. So it's a it's a double India pale ale put out by Tapestry Brewing. Uh, this is a it's you know I, I, I sort of a gold. Color. Uh, they call it a brown sugar double IPA. Okay, uh, it's got sort of a uh, lacy head. You know, it's very sweet. Very sweet. You can um, feel it kind of in the on the tongue. Um, it's sort of thick. Thick. Um, it's got a little bit of a sweetness and but some tang to it as well. Maybe from the Simcoe dry hop. Yeah, you get little, little notes of the citrus, maybe. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I'm. I'm I'm going to give my always good. <laughs> always good. Thumbs up. Always good. Um, I always think good. One, one beer, if it would be good, I don't know if I'd want to have a picture of it. Oh, no. No, this is... And, and here's why I would not want to have a picture of it. It is 9.5% alcohol by volume. 
Um, so it's a little bit stronger than some other beers. Um, and that's the character of the word double. When you get a beer and it says like double IPA, um, they pack a lot into it. Yeah, this is uh, the, 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 we get a can, they sell it in a can, and, and the can is certainly bigger than a 12 ounce can. Um, so, yeah. It's a pint. I think so. I yeah. think it's a pint. And it, I was looking for the measure on it. I don't, I don't see it here anywhere, but I'm sure it's here. Yeah, I, I see it around on the side, and it shows one pint. Oh, there uh, we go. Yeah, Enigma will fascinate your palate with a balanced blood of Simcoe hops harmonized by a soft touch of brown sugar. Be intrigued. Mm. Tapestry Brewing. We're glad to feature you on Grace on Tap during our beer break. Okay, now now that Luther has finally defined stealing, he begins to outline the church's responsibility for teaching about this commandment. And there's there's two parts to that, as always. Mm-hmm. There's the negative and the positive. So the negative, he says, explain it to the common people, not to let them go in their wantonness and security, but always to place before their eyes the wrath of God and inculcate the same. So he wants us to be broad enough with our definition of stealing that everyone would understand they stand under the wrath of God, that no one is innocent. We all, in some way, uh, work to protect ourselves and not protect others. So, and then he goes into the positive, and he says, "We are called to faithful, and we are called to fa- to faithfully preserve our neighbor's property for him, to secure and promote his advantage, especially when one ex- accepts money, wages." And one's livelihood for such service. So if I take money from you, I take wages from you, or I, my livelihood is found in service to you, all of that means that um, there's an interchange here of goods. And that should be done honorably. Now, in his treatise on good works, uh, he describes this as benevolence. That uh, this commandment uh, embraces very many good works and is opposed to many vices and is called benevolence, which it means a work ready to help and serve everyone with one's goods. And it fights not only against theft and robbery, but against all stinting in temporal goods, which men may practice toward one another. So one of the things that I'm going on with the uh, Luther's commentary on the seventh commandment and his uh, discussion of his, yeah. his, the treatise on good works, uh, he, he talks about uh, how this is a, a, a proclamation of faith. So, so he, he describes the commandment can be clearly seen how all good works must be done in faith. For here, everyone most surely feels that the cause of covetousness is distrust. The cause of liberality is faith. So he talks about the liberalness with our goods, our money, our wages, our time to help and protect a neighbor is an expression of faith. Then that makes sense. You know, if, if, if our money comes from God, which it does, you know, what, what, everything we have comes and from God. And we pray, give us this day our daily bread. And we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, then what, what we're saying is when we covet or when we, when we hoard or when we, uh, when we cheat others, what we're doing is we're saying, you know what? I don't quite trust that God guy. You know, yeah, he's, he covers other people. But he doesn't have my back, you know, and that's sort of what this is getting at. Is that what Luther's trying to say? Is that you know to really trust in God, we're we're going to be generous. We're going to give liberally to to others. We're gonna and and trust that God is going to take care of us. So here's the use of the word liberal and conservative. 
in, in maybe a way that people aren't used to in politics today. Oh, that's right. Everything's political. Everything's political. That's right. <laughs> but conservative here, we're not talking about values no. or traditions. Uh, here, someone is uh, greedy and cheating when they conserve their goods to benefit themselves without thought of another. Well, and to give liberally, it's, uh, it's uh, th- this is the usage of the word liberal that is uh, generously. It, mm-hmm. it's, it equates to generous generosity. Um, from a place of abundance from, rather than scarcity. Exactly. So... So when, when I mention to give liberally, I'm not making any any political commentary at all. Uh, what I'm saying is to and I let me re- just replace the word with generously yeah. because that's that's what uh, that's what we're talking about. And he he does all this conversation about benevolence and and the virtue of dealing honestly in business in the context of expecting that there is business that someone does do a, a job and they are rewarded for their skill. And his question. Um, his statement isn't about just giving away everything, but recognizing as you take money from someone for a job or as you uh, hire someone for a job, wherever this interchange is happening, do so in such a way that helps to benefit and protect your neighbor. We, we have services to provide to one another. We have and we have to we, ha- we have to charge take care. for those. And- we charge for those. And we charge fairly. And we do the best we can, and we want to provide quality services. We we don't want to hire a bunch of people who don't know what they're doing, you know, all that kind of thing. So because that would cheat our our customers, you know, our customers who are counting on us sending quality people to to do the work mm-hmm. would be getting terrible people. But there's also this component of it that well, but but we need to be we need to be generous in all of this. So don't and, take that advantage of that moment to deceive and to. Uh, swivel people out of their chair well it, it, what he does is he <laughs> okay i'm changing chairs with you next time but the, the, but the what he does is he he, he says listen you, you begin you need to start by by driving home to each individual that they don't cheat that's where it begins it begins with the individual you know, it, it, so there's there's a, and he starts with the, the the negative use of the law, right? And he says, you know, so we have to sort of educate. So you don't want to hire a bunch of lazy people. You don't want to hire a bunch of cheaters. You don't want to hire just because you know quota some sort of quota or something. No, you, you, what you start with is preaching the word of God. You know, you you preach the law and you preach the gospel, and through the law and the gospel, then that unlocks the potential of the individual. That, but it all begins with that, and without that, you know, we're we're sort of lost in this quotas and 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 things never quite work out exactly right. So Luther is not quite a capitalist. He's not quite a socialist. He is uh, a paradox of being benevolent and being honest, uh, protecting and caring for your own goods, but also trying not to take or deceive someone from their their goods, and trusting that God is abundantly blessing you. And using you to bless others, somehow this works out. Maybe it is a little bit more of that invisible hand. Yeah, yeah. You know, Luther. Luther starts well, the, and then he goes into talking about wealth. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's he's going in and he's saying, uh, where you have cheated and overcharged anyone to the amount of a florin, your entire pile shall be consumed with rust, so that you shall never enjoy it. He's referencing. He's talking about people with wealth who are cheaters, and that they are going to be miserable. Now, I guess my own personal experience is I know 
I have seen miserable wealthy people who didn't lose a dime, <laughs> who continue to be wealthy. And so I'm not. I think the book of Ecclesiastes gets into this a little bit and talks about almost more the generation to the next generation and how, you know, if you've thought you've built up a great trust for your family because you've built this great pile of money, uh, maybe it's been through cheating and overcharging, but now you've placed a pile of money that your family can use and trust. He says, your trust is rot. Yeah, your, your trust, your trust is rotted. Your trust is rust, rusted, and, and you're not going to get the chance to enjoy it and have the security you think you will. It's interesting that the word trust. You talk about trust funds, mm-hmm. or you know that, that a, a trust. You know, when when you trust the trust instead of trusting God, mm-hmm. you know, then then you have real problems. Now the next sentence is also kind of thing spot on. We see and experience this being fulfilled daily before our eyes that no stolen or dishonestly acquired possession thrives. And, and here he's, he's making the point, I think, that anything that is done through um, stealing or dishonesty, it's eventually going to be revealed. And he goes on, he says, Though they gather much, they must suffer so many plagues and misfortunes that they cannot relish it with cheerfulness, nor transmit it to their children. And, and that's sort of, I, 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 uh, yeah, I see that every day. You know, I think we, we see that, you know, where people, um, people, str- people, wealthy, people with a lot of wealth. It's a, it's a hard, hard, hard situation to be in, to be wealthy. I wouldn't mind having some wealth, though, Mike. <laughs> I, I know it's hard, but a little bit I more. I take it on. <laughs> I'm ready. Give me a try. <laughs> I'll swing for that fence. <laughs> Let me give it a try. Put me in, coach. So but it's the it's the the reality that uh, Luther's making the point that those who place their trust in an idol, whatever that idol is, um, it'll be found to be empty. Going back to Luther's commentary on the Magnificat, and we had that episode a while back. Uh, God likes to create out of nothing. God creates. And, and, and when, he prefers to create out of our weaknesses, out of our struggles, so that his grace is revealed to be sufficient. Just even going back to Gideon and the fleece, and not uh, the fleece, but the, um, the drinking of the water out of the, and how big is the, the force it's going to be to go in battle. So he writes in the Magnificat, just as God created the universe from nothing, he prefers to create from nothing, even today. So he builds up the weak and the poor while he allows the powerful and the rich who have acquired their wealth through deceit to struggle in their wealth so that they cannot relish it with cheerfulness. I'll tell you, Mike, I know you wanted to start on that quote, but the way you continually bring uh, Luther's commentary on the Magnificat forward is a, a great thing for me as well. Because it's, uh, I think his commentary on the Magnific- Magnificat is a lot of where he goes into what faith in real life looks like. I actually have a quote from Luther's commentary on the Magnificat in my office at work. I, I, I really love Luther's commentary on the Magnificat. I think I find it to be one of the most valuable writings in my daily life uh, is to go back to what Luther has to say there. Now in paragraph 247, Luther notes that those of us with wealth need to be very careful in our dealings with the poor. If we are cold-hearted to the poor, they will cry and call to heaven, and their cry will reach him who takes care of the poor, sorrowful hearts, and will not allow them to go unavenged. And this is um, an allusion back to Cain and Abel, and how after Cain kills Abel, and how God comes to Cain and says that even now the blood of the earth is crying up to me, what have you done, Cain? And, and so then Cain responds, am I my brother's keeper? 
And this allusion back to how the wealth care for the poor is to place ourselves into that that spot um, of watchfulness. Don't be Cain. Don't be the one uh, that ignores your brother and actually punishes him for just simply being your brother. Now, we talked about this in the last episode. um, And basically, it's saying, again, we need to support the poor. Uh, and but we also need to be careful uh, and be, not being foolish with what God has given us. So we need to help the poor without supporting thievery, and that's sort of a uh, you know we have to be thoughtful about it. We talked about it before. And, you know. The class conflict that you see at this time of the Reformation period is is just fascinating to think about how the transfer of wealth is happening, the transfer of importance and place in society from simply the nobles to also now those who are in the marketplace. Um, it's a big move. And even um, not very far from Luther in Wittenberg is Leipzig, which had um, a huge trade show every year. There's a big mall that it was built there in this time period, uh, not like the Galleria, but it was a place for every year's trade show where people would bring like their little mini ovens and their little mini things to trade them. So Luther's right in this place of crossroads where trade is becoming a, a currency where before land was the currency. Yeah, things are tr- changing dramatically at exactly this time. Right after that, Luther turns his attention to helping the young to be both aware of God's law, but also um, to become leaders to create laws that make it easier uh, for subsequent children uh, to know right from wrong uh, by seeing, uh, seeing through the law, through, through the secular law, uh, seeing... Bad people punished and good people supported. So Luther here is recognizing that uh, to keep the Seventh Commandment won't happen just through um, individual directions to keep the commandment, but that there are system changes that need to take place as well. And so Luther says to, uh, part of the purpose of all this is to check such open wantonness. There is a need of the princes and the government who themselves would have eyes and the courage to establish and maintain order in all manner of trade and commerce. So he points, he's pointing out that good governance is uh, really, you know, uh, there to help and protect the poor and all of us, really. Mm-hmm. So um, finishing up, Luther does a summary of the seventh commandment. Um, and he says, stealing is when we do our neighbors any injury or wrong in whatever manner supposable by curtailing, forestalling, and withholding his possessions and property, or even to consent or allow such a thing, but to, but to interpose and prevent it. There is no one who is neutral in relationship to his neighbor. We always are either benefiting and supporting and encouraging our neighbor in his possessions or stealing, taking, or um, consenting or allowing our neighbor to be abused. Uh, And then it goes, uh, just like all the other commandments, he brings up a positive interpretation. It is commanded that we could advance and improve our neighbor's possessions. And in case he suffers wants, that we help communicate and lend both to friends and foes. Lend both to friends and to foes. Uh, now that's something that doesn't happen very often. Uh, but that's what we're called to do. And, and Love thy neighbor, even if you don't want him to be your neighbor. Uh, and then in the final paragraph, Luther quotes Proverbs 19 to give us a little more guidance on how we should handle money. He, hath had, he that hath pity upon the poor lendeth unto the Lord, and that which he hath given will he, will he the Lord pay him again. And there, because we're taking the um, large catechism from the book of, uh, from the public domain, the 
quote yeah, the, we get from Proverbs 19 that ends up being the King James. <laughs> I was going to say, half. <laughs> Bye. Yeah, I was really sort of struggling with that. You know? But that's, that's what... But the, the, the point is made. You know, the point is made. When that, you are lending to the poor, you're lending to the Lord himself. And, and that's one of the things that, you know, and I'm always happy to see in some of these developing countries these uh, micro loans mm-hmm. that go out. And I, I think, I think you know, I, I once heard somebody say that the, the, the most important thing for a society is the management of capital. And, uh, and so, you know, to, to, to go into a culture and have, them have, have people have the opportunity to manage capital, you know, and to learn how to manage capital and learn how to, you know, give small loans. And, and that really is the building blocks of learning how to run a much larger, com- you know, country. And so it's, it's uh, the finance world is, there's a lot of opportunity to do good within the world of finance. And, uh, and Luther's sort of bringing that up here. So this was our conversation on the seventh commandment. Uh, Our next episode is going to be talking about the Eighth Commandment, and we'll be looking at reputation, gossip, and uh, how we can use our words and our time to help support our neighbor in his reputation. Uh, Thank you for listening to Grace on Tap. Graceontap-podcast.com is our website. If you want to contact us, that's probably the best place. To make a comment on one of the posts in that blog uh, that's on the website. We'll get a notification that there's a comment on the blog we can answer. It's a great place to be in dialogue with past episodes because we know that not everybody's listening in kind of a a linear fashion. So if you're listening to an episode that we recorded a couple years ago and you want to add a comment to that, I will see that and it'll be a place for dialogue. Very good. Prost. Prost.